sound effect doesn't get old. I like it. So we're going to use it. Um, we're in the series on landmines, and uh, we've got about this and about three other weeks left. And what happened uh, last week is we kind of set the introduction talking about uh, politics, and I shared with you just how much trust is required. Now, I know this is a touchy subject for a lot of people. It's something that we all uh, have some place in. Uh, we all are uh, experience different viewpoints, especially when it comes to political things. Uh, but I want us to speak in truthful terms, and I want us to address uh, what the actual issues are. And we're going to do a little bit of that today, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll even make it to the end of the sermon. We'll, we'll kind of see how we go. But last week, what I talked about is that there are two worlds at play. One is called the empire, and one is called the kingdom. And we have to decide which side we're on first. All of us live at a time and in a place, and we are subject to the empire. We, we can't get out of this. We, I mean, I guess we could go live off in some commune somewhere and act like we don't actually live where we do. But these two worlds intersect in our lives. And sometimes they say the same thing, and sometimes they are on opposite sides of the equation, opposite sides of the aisles in our lives. And we have to try to consolidate how do we live into both of these things while creating honor for the other system as well. Uh, we talked about what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 6, where he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about seek first the kingdom. And last week I gave you a, uh, you know, this last week gave you an assignment of, Try to go out and see and seek the kingdom of God. Because the empire we are bombarded by, we see all the time. But having eyes to see and seek the kingdom, as Jesus talks about, is very difficult. And, and, and really, what I think what Jesus does, if you want to know about this interplay between kingdom and empire, the Gospel of Matthew really talks about it time and time again. Because Jesus is engaging the system of that day, and he's trying to bring and give a word of kingdom to people that need to hear it. Now, I don't know if this is true for you, but I believe this is true. When God is in his rightful place in our lives, as Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, everything else will find its place. And my life tends to go better when God is in the number one position. My marriage goes better. I'm a better employer, employee, whatever you want, relationship, friend. When the kingdom of God is in its rightful place, everything in my life seems to go a lot better. When empire is first, and another nice word for empire is mine, <laughs> when I live into the mindness of my life, life doesn't tend to go as well. Here are some, some uh, landmines and truths that I want us to know. Politics is a good servant, but it's a terrible master. If it's something that we use and something that we're a part of, and we put it in its rightful place, It'll work well. If it controls everything about our lives and our thinking, it's going to be bad. The truth is this. Politics is a great tool, but it's not a solution. Politics is the same as money. Money is an inanimate object that is, no, is not good or bad in and of itself. It is a tool that can be used for good, or it is a tool that can be used for evil. And we have to choose how we use these but you see, politics thrives in a world of fear and the illusion of transparency or truth. I know we don't think that's true, but just think about some of the things. If we look through the pages of history, promises that were made or things that people said were going were gonna to happen, 
that didn't happen because we always believe that our side, whatever side that might be, is telling us the truth and being perfectly honest and this other side is just lying to us. But fear is a very powerful tool. We make people afraid of things. You know, this is who you can blame for why we are where we are. But think about, if you think about politics, if you think about arguments that have been made, if we look back, it's like, no, it didn't actually work that way. That wasn't true. They promised this, and that didn't happen. And I know we always think that our side keeps all their promises, and the other side doesn't. But it's not true. It's not real. It's an illusion that we live into. There, there are people that do better with certain things and worse with things. That's absolutely true. But nobody's fixed it, even though they promised they would. And then they use fear to keep us in bondage and in slavery. I believe this to be the ultimate truth. Only Jesus, through kingdom, can bring truth and unity. And the reason why I think this is because Jesus has the upper hand. While we are people who tell the truth, the Bible tells us in John 14 that Jesus is the truth. There's a difference between those things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The very essence and the being of me brings about unity and truth. People just don't want to hear it. And the reason why we are divided is because we have moments of truth. We're not living into truth. So let's pick the issues. What issues you want to want to talk about? Immigration, racism, poverty. Are these things rampant in our world? Are they problems? Absolutely. There's not one person I think you talk to go, no, we got all that sorted out. I know a lot of you may, maybe don't know this. Those of you that know me, I'm an immigrant. I was not born in the United States. I became a citizen in, in 2006. And I did that, you know, legally. I mean, at least mostly, mostly legally. Um, it's, it's pretty pretty legal. Um, is this being sent out live? Because... <laughs> I may not be here next week. No, um, and people go, oh, you married an American, so you became an American. I said, no, it took 10 years and $10,000. And I was treated badly every step of the way. I understand why people do it illegally. And I think one of the things that we need to wrap our brains around is that immigration didn't used to be the problem. We've, we have contributed massively to why it is a problem. In the older days, people could move. There were, there were, there were migrant workers who would come in for a season and then go home. And then people said, no, too many people are coming, so let's build a wall and let's not let people move back and forth. So now people said, well, our families have got to be with us because we don't want to be apart. I'm not saying that's the only problem, but that's one of the problems. And people do it illegally because most people don't have $10,000. Most people don't have 10 years. And I think we're naive if we think, well, if I was living in abject poverty, I wouldn't want better for my family. We, we only see it from the perspective we're in, and what we do is we say, no, no, this place is ours. The same is true for poverty. Look, Jesus says, listen, the poor will always be with you. And some people choose poverty as a way of life. But for others, there's genuine systemic issues as to why this happens. We're, we're taught to hate certain people and love other people. We're taught to be biased. And, and a reality check in the midst of this is we've got to stop making things about one issue. Well, that I could never vote for a person who believes in this. It's way more complicated than that. And if we just pretend that we somehow are beacons of truth because we disagree with somebody, because your side is not telling the whole truth either. This side is not telling the whole truth either. We also have to accept that we cannot fix everything. I think when people get up and they're like, no, we're going to just fix it all. That's a lie. Jesus said, 
that cannot be done. And we're going to talk about what we can do. This is why when you read the Old Testament passages like Micah 6 8 that say, What does the Lord require of you? He requires us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, to understand our place in the kingdom. This is Matthew 23 when Jesus confronts the religious leaders and he calls out this passage. He says, you guys are doing everything right according to the empire, but you're neglecting the kingdom. You're forgetting the stuff that actually matters. Now, I'm going to throw a lot of text at you today, and that's for a couple reasons. Number one, I didn't prepare so much, so I've got to give you a lot of Bible. No, I'm just kidding. I did. I want you to see how rampant this is, and I want you to see that there are conflicts. Uh, but the, the other side is I want us to hear from God and not just you listen to me about this. In Matthew 25, we're going to be in Matthew 25 twice today. But in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, there is this judgment scene that unfolds. And this is what happens. It says, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay, it's a, it's a judgment seat. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, and he'll put the goats on his left. Verse 34, you've got to love this. Then the king, not the Messiah, not the Christ, the king. The king will sit on his throne. And to those on the right, he will say, come to me, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, the word is actually foreigner, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous go, when did we do all these things? When did we feed you and clothe you and visit you in prison? And Jesus says, when you did this for the least of these. What he means by that is those people that you have been taught and conditioned to be biased against. When you did it for those people, when you crossed the boundary of your empire life, you stepped into kingdom. And it was like you were doing it for me. Then the next one, he says in verse 41, then to those on his left, he'll say, you depart from me because I was hungry. You, did not, you lived in your comfort zone and you did nothing that affected change in the world. And when Jesus closes down this passage, it's harsh language. Verse 45, he replied, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now you need to go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go away to eternal this is a big landmine, and it's one we have to get over. We have a false sense of kingdom. This body is not mine. And there are some days that I look in the mirror, and I'm very grateful. You know what I mean. This is on loan. We do not own the world. We do not own this country. We do not own this church. They are all God's, and he loans them to us for a cost. And we need to understand that. 
Because I want to tell you something. A false sense of ownership is why we are such empire people. This is why whenever I talk about giving, and I do that about once a year, one of the greatest principles of giving is learning that everything we have is on loan. And we are just managing it for a time. And if we wrap our, our minds around that, it will change the way that we see money and stuff. But the empire teaches us to hoard and to hold and to say, this is all mine. And that's empire thinking. I've got to accumulate as much as I can. I've got to get as much as I can for me. I need to set myself apart from somebody else because I have a bigger house or a nicer car. If you see things in your life as belonging to God, it will change the way that we use them. And the empire is good at creating fear and the illusion of truth that it really is all yours. This is why when God writes the Old Testament law, now Leviticus is not a book that we read a whole lot. Leviticus 19 is kind of the, uh, what I'm going to call the catch-all <laughs> of, of all the laws that they didn't quite know where else to put them. And in Leviticus 19, they have this, this long thing about how you're meant to live in relationship with people. Just listen to some of them. They're awesome. Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak this to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy or be different. Or live in the kingdom, because that's where I reside. Some of the Ten Commandments are repeated in here. You'll see them. Each one of you must respect your mother and father. I mean, that's, that's kind of a given. We, we know that one, don't we? Verse 9, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your fields. Or gather the gleanings, meaning the stuff that falls off while you're, while you're picking, of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick the grapes that have fallen. Leave those for the poor and the foreigner because I'm the Lord. And then right after he says, don't steal. If you want to go back and get everything so you have more, don't do that. Live your life with, with some appreciation for who else is out there. Verse 13, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back, uh, back wages of a worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf. You have to be nice to me. Or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Don't pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Verse 18, don't, don't hold a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor, meaning again, your, also the foreigners. Love them as you love yourself. Verse 26, do not practice divination or seek omens. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. I'm not quite sure what that's there for, but do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. Half of you are out. Um, do not turn to mediums, verse 31, or seek spiritualists to be defiled by them. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Respect the elderly. Revere the Lord. Verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you, in your land, don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as if they're native born. Love them as yourself because you were foreigners in Egypt. He reminds Israel, the promised land's not yours. You didn't have it. You were immigrants. And I led you out and I gave you something powerful. Keep all my decrees and all my laws. 
follow them. This is what he talks about. This is a declaration of the Lord. When we read Ezekiel 47, I know I'm just I'm going rapid fire with some of these, but Ezekiel chapter 47, he says, you are to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. There is a part of it that is yours, but you are to allot an inheritance for yourselves and also for the foreigners that live in your land, the ones who have children. You are to consider them as if they are native-born. In whatever tribe a foreigner resides, you are to give them their inheritance, declares the Lord. When Paul, if we want to know what the solve between immigration and poverty and racism and whatever the issues of the day might be, this is why Paul writes this profound passage of Scripture in Philippians 2 where he simply says to the people, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves or above yourselves. That's not what the empire teaches. The empire says, you are the biggest thing in your story. You are the biggest thing in your circle. I remember years ago, um, I heard somebody say something, and, it, and it's hard for me to get away from it at times. You see street beggars, right, with cardboard. I'm going to be honest with you. My first thought is always, where did you get a Sharpie? I'm just being honest with you. I was, it's so easy for me to go down the road of what they could do better in their life. I remember somebody said, when you see somebody like that, what you need to think in your mind is this. This person was created by God. This person is loved by God. This person is valuable to God. That really changed my life. In humility, realize that every person we encounter is God's valuable possession. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, you should have the same heart, attitude, mindset as Christ Jesus, who was God in very nature. He was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be had, but he made himself nothing. He became a servant. He laid down his life. God had every reason to say, I am it. And he says he didn't even use that to put himself above others. He laid his life down in obedience to the kingdom. He didn't take hold of empire. That's why when Paul writes later to Romans, that's why he says, because in Christ there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles, rich and old. I mean, r rich and poor, young and old, black and white, men and women. Whatever, whatever language you want to use, it says, if we leave this place thinking about others better than we do ourselves, the world would really not have so many of the problems that it currently does. Because God is on the throne and in his rightful place, and when he is there, it changes the way that we live. If we go out and think, I've got to prove that I'm better than everybody else, we're always going to fall headlong into being people of empire. Kingdom people look at others and say, hey, I'm just here for a time. One of the things that we need to realize is that we are God's entrusted people. God has entrusted us with, an, with incredible responsibility and amounts of responsibility. 
In Matthew 25, I'm not going to read it, we have this thing called the parable of the talents. It's, it's kind of before the sheep and the goats passage that I read here just a moment ago. And we all know the story well, don't we? So the man was going on a long journey, called his servants to him, and he entrusted them his possessions. To one he gave five talents, to one he gave two, to one he gave one. You know the story, right? And the one that has five, he goes out and he makes five more. The one that has two makes two more. And the one with one has an empire mindset and goes and buries it in the ground. And then the master comes back and says, what did you do? And the one with five says, I got five more. The one with the two says, I got two more. And the one with the one says, oh, no, I just buried it in the ground because I was scared of you. And it says he takes that away, that talent away, gives it to the one who now has ten, and sends that servant away as a wicked servant. You know, we always preach this passage as personal giftedness that God has given us. That's the way we've heard it, right? God has given some of us five talents and two talents and one talent. And it doesn't matter how much talent you have. What matters is what you do with it, right? That's what we've heard it. That's how we preach it. It's not untrue. But I thought this week, what if we, in the spirit of what we've been entrusted with, what if we uh, talked about that in terms of when and where we live? Talk about America. We know the story. The master is God. The servants are us. God entrusted us with this land, with this country. I would argue that America is a five-talent country. Do you agree? The point is not how much we have. The point is what we do with it. And when the kingdom God returns, Will he say, good job? Or will he say, I gave you everything to be a light to the world. And you would rather fight amongst yourselves and divide. How can the richest country in the world have so much poverty? How is that even possible? How can people who say they believe in the story of God <laughs> act this way towards each other? How can they do this? Maybe the conviction for every one of us is, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Who will do it? If you and I don't step up and take our place with God in the kingdom because we're so focused on the empire, who's going to do it? You see, the empire tries to fix things, but the kingdom realizes that the only thing we can actually do is change. We can only affect change in our world. And as soon as we understand that people are not problems to be fixed, but they are lives to be changed, it will change the way that we live in our communities. Because when we, instead of looking at everything and, and, and counting numbers and doing all that, I think a lot of people's lives are not changed because they do not know Jesus. Because they do not know the word of hope and the beauty that, that Jesus brings. Only Jesus can change people. I cannot change people. The only thing that I can do is try to introduce you to Jesus and let him change you. When you walk out at the coffee bar, there's a, little, there's a little counter thing, a little thing on the wall that says encountering God. That's what we try to do here. We don't say pastors to change people or use rhetoric well. We say when people meet God truly, they will be changed. It will affect the way that they live. And our job, even though we struggle with that, is to try to introduce people to Jesus. And the only way we do that is by opening our lives up to kingdom. That's a lot, I know. But let me, let me bring it home for us now. Let me, let me talk about why it matters. 
is a picture of a very sacred place. You hear the music, so we're almost done, but just bear with me. This is a very sacred place. Uh, this is a place called Gettysburg. And for those of you that like history or love history, maybe not you, but Tanya, but everybody else who loves history, uh, something profound happened at this place. During the time of Civil War, where Americans were fighting Americans. A sad time. And the president at the time, Abraham Lincoln, he got up and he gave a speech called the Gettysburg Address. It's short. It's half a page. But I want to read you a part of this, and then I'm going to share another story, and another story, and another story. And I'm going to tell you why it matters. Abraham Lincoln, he said this. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether our nation or any nation, so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on the great battlefield of that war. We have come here to dedicate a portion of that field as a resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. Although it is fitting and proper for us to do that here. If you're a movie buff, you love the movie, Remember the Titans, where Coach Boone, played by Denzel Washington, gives a speech to his boys, gets them up in the middle of the night, they run, this place. The fog is over the field. And you may not know this, but the words, the quote that he uses in that movie was actually taken from two tombstones at Gettysburg. He said to them, he said, anybody know what this place is? It's Gettysburg. This is where they fought the battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field. Fighting the same fight we are still fighting amongst ourselves today. This green field right here was painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls. The inscriptions say, I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my faith. You listen. We take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed. Just as they were. The kingdom always requires sacrifice. Sometimes that's why empire is easier. There's an old story told in preaching circles that you've probably heard before. It's called the story of the starfish. It's a place in South Carolina where just about every year during the spring tides, it washes hundreds and thousands of starfish up onto the shore. 
there was a man that was parked in his car, and he was just watching the waves during this beautiful time of the morning, and he saw a man and his uh, a, a father and his daughter walking on the beach, and she would walk a few steps and pick up a starfish and throw it back in the water, then walk a few more steps and do it again and again and again. And he was mesmerized by what they were doing. And he, he got out of his truck, and he walked along the beach, and he came to this little family, and he looked at her, and he said, what are you doing? There's no way you can possibly save all the starfish. You're not making any difference. She picked up a starfish. She threw it in the ocean. And she said, made a difference for that. That's kingdom. One of the greatest ways that we can test ourselves that we walk and step into kingdom is by being involved in things that are bigger than us. Last week, uh, Gwen, I invited her on stage, and we talked a little bit about Emerald Angels. Emerald Angels is a local organization that helps foster families and provides support to foster families uh, that are going through that process. And our church has decided that over the course of this next year, we are going to partner with Emerald Angels. But let's watch a video about why that happened. introduced to the Bible. Initially, I cannot grasp the concept that somebody will be there for you for free. It's really heaven sent for me. It's like a big blessing. I was so open because I don't have family. I don't have friends who have signed up to be the babysitter of our kids. And suddenly, there are these little strangers who are willing to help. There are a lot of things that our love box crew has done for us. The listening ears and the time that they spend with you. It's like you have a friend. They are consistent. They are committed. When you have the love box crew, there are people whom you can depend on. Everybody's busy, but there's somebody who's giving you their free time just to be with you and listen to you. I don't know how we're going to go through foster care without our love box.
tell you, we can't fix the Boston Bridges. But we can affect change. We can bless families in a very real way. I'm not going to give you this trite little answer. If you're a couple and you decide to give $30 a month in the love box offering, your cards at the end of your seat, we're not going to take those up for a couple weeks still. But how many of us spend more than a dollar a day on a suit and totem drink? I spend more than that in coffee every day. It's not hard for us to give something and really create change. Don't you love the language she used and said, strangers? That's Matthew 25 language. That's kingdom language. I didn't even know who these strangers were, but they came in and they helped us and they blessed our lives. If you're an individual and you say, hey, I can afford $15 a month, that's fine. We're going to commit to that for one year together. And I want us to see with kingdom eyes, guys, we're not going to fix everything. But we can make a change for a few in this way. There's so many good missions in Amarillo. There's so many things that we could be a part of. We've chosen this. Not because it's the be-all and end-all, but because we believe we can make a difference in something that truly matters. I know some of you in this room are fostering kids or have fostered kids, have adopted children. This is a way that our church can really step into kingdom to make it bigger than ourselves. And need I remind you, when I watched that video, I didn't think about the foster care system. You know what I thought about? I thought about me. Because that's my story with God. I was out somewhere else. God fostered my life and I went back. Probably more times than these kids did. And then God adopted me as a child. And he said, you're mine. Because people rally. And people live into kingdom. And it changed a small part of the world. I want us to be a part of kingdom. I don't mind if you want to talk about anything in the world. But put God where he needs to be first. And be a kingdom person first. And everything else will find its place. And we will start living into truth and life in ways that we never have before. So on the end of the seat, there's some in the welcome booth if you want, and we're not rushing you. We're not trying to show you a sad video so that you'll sign up. We want you to believe in this, to say, I'm choosing this to be a point that I'm going to see the world with kingdom eyes. This is just one of the ways that I'm going to do that. So take those home, think about them, pray about them, talk about them with your kids, with your family, say, hey, we're not going to go out to eat one night a a month because we're going to support something that affects change, and that's kingdom. That's a great lesson to teach us. It will change them and their families. And maybe, just maybe, we will start to become kingdom people. So, Father, today as we close our time in worship, as we celebrate how much you've done for us, God, may we also know that the mantle is also passed to us to affect change, to be the kingdom. That when you said, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, you weren't just talking about yourself, you were talking about us. You were talking about us doing some of the heavy lifting, carrying the kingdom for you, and showing people that you are alive and well and powerful and doing mighty things. And God, even though we are broken and struggling, we thank you that you accepted us into your family. Father, I know for 20 years you've been taking whatever words I say and 
hopefully changing them before people hear them. I pray today would be that day as well. That you would take very imperfect words and infuse them with kingdom presence. And let us hear them with our hearts today. As we sing in worship, as we lift your name high, Father, would you be in our midst? Would you just call us? When we leave this place, may we try to see kingdom and not just empire. We thank you, Jesus, who gave everything so we could be a part of your family. We ask this all in your name.